you're between the ages of four to eight, you're excused to kids' club. Well, we are now in week two of a two-week series, so that means if you weren't here last week, you missed half. You're way behind, and we'll walk you back through it. We're calling this short series Relational Hygiene, and what we're discussing is the regular habits or the hygiene that is necessary to keep relationships healthy. Just like you would wash your hands, just like you would brush your teeth or floss, this is a reminder you're supposed to floss. I forget all the time, so join the club. But these are the things that are necessary to keep us healthy. These are some habits that are necessary to keep our relationships healthy. So let me tell you why. Because as we lean into the gospel, the gospel says one thing. It declares to us how we rightly reconcile ourselves to God. But the gospel then also calls us to be rightly related to one another. And we do that by having healthy habits towards one another. So just to make the point, let's take a quick poll. Who sinned this week? Okay, now keep your hands up if it was more than once. I would point out, that's all of us. So the chances are, if all of us sin, there's a good chance that all of us sinned against somebody, right? So do we just let that go? Do we just chalk it up as a mistake? Do we just keep moving on? And if we do, at what point do we just keep moving on? At what point do we need to step into that? See, as a church, we're full of people who let each other down. And there's only one who won't, and that's Jesus. So as we relate to one another, as we sin against one another, the mistake that we can make is to think that it doesn't matter or that it won't leave an impact. So we're called to relational hygiene. So we're going to turn back into Matthew 18 and look at what Jesus had to say on this issue. If you weren't here with us last week, last week we focused on verse 15, the fact that it's first about you, because as you come into conflict with someone, the first person that you have to deal with is you, and the only person that you have control over is you. So from verse 15, we pulled three principles, I'll give them to you again. The first was, be willing to overlook an offense. We brought this out of the idea that as Jesus puts this out, Matthew writes it, he calls it sin. If your brother sins against you, which means that there's a whole litany of things that could happen that are not sin that you've got to take into consideration, we put Proverbs 19.11 before you last week. It says, good sense makes one slow to anger. You know that's words from the book of James. And it is to his glory to overlook an offense. What it says in Proverbs is if your brother, and obviously in some cases your sister, if, if for simplicity seeking, although we're going to keep using the word brother, if your brother sins against you, and this is our great clarifier, because this isn't your brother irritating you, it's not your brother mastering your pet peeves, it's not even your brother doing something that would hurt you, it says if it isn't sin, perhaps you should move on. That's what Proverbs adds to this conversation, that we be willing to overlook it. For if your brother sins against you, and the second principle we came to last week was called self-reflect, or I jokingly call it tree removal. Because as you look at it, we pull this principle from the comma after the against you, because commas always grammatically ask you to pause. 
So we want to ask you to pause and reflect, keeping in mind Matthew 7, which says this. Why do you see the speck that is in your, own, in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Which is why we call it tree removal. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And please note from Matthew 7, it doesn't necessitate that you haven't been sinned against. It actually tells you that you'll be, have a much clearer perspective having dealt with your own sin to deal with somebody else's. Because he does tell you, you take the speck out of your brother's eye, but deal with your sin before you try to deal with your brother or your sister's sin. And finally, the third one we pulled from last week was go to him or go as one, as we will now call it. Verse 15 ends by saying, go and tell him his fault. And again, we have to make clear what Jesus is saying here when he says to overlook an offense, to self-reflect, that at no point have we got to the point where you tell all your friends, you tell your mother, or you post it on social media. Hasn't shown up yet. So what Jesus says here is that you would go to the person that has sinned against you, that you would go humbly, you would seek them out, and you would discuss it with them alone. Now, as we walked through that last week, I got an email or two, and absolutely, are there exceptions to this rule? Yes. If your safety is in order, absolutely, there are exceptions to this rule, but we're not trying to lay out all the exceptions that would take too long. We're trying to create a standard of conflict resolution within the church to lead us and guide us to how we relate with one another. So what Matthew has put before us through the words of Jesus is to overlook an offense, self-reflect, and go as one. So we've dealt with you so far. The last phrase in 15 gives us one way that that might end. It says, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But that's not the only response, is it? Verse 16 and following then lays that out for us. How then do you handle conflict if you've gone to somebody and said, hey, you've sinned against me and they blow you off or they don't respect you or they don't honor you? What then do you do? And just for a moment, I want us to step out of Matthew and into the book of Romans and consider the goal of our conflict. Because this is what Paul writes in Romans. Romans twelve sixteen, he says, live in harmony with one another. And then two verses later, he adds, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, I put this before you now because you need to at least assess what is your goal for conflict? Because if your goal is winning, it's become about you. If your goal is harmony and peace, then it's got at least a shot to be about Jesus. And, and that's what Matthew, that's what Jesus is calling us to hear, that as believers in Christ, our goal should be harmony. It should be to live peaceably with one another. Because when we're seeking this harmony and peace, Christ is glorified. Now, as we work through this, you've now humbly approached somebody who has sinned against you, you have stopped to, self, to overlook it. You've self-reflected. You've noted your own sin. You've gone to them and they did not listen. So we move to verse 16. And this is what it says. If you've decided to live peaceably with your brother or sister and they've rejected you, 
Now we want to remind you of the book of Proverbs, which says in Proverbs 9, 8, Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. And you have to at least acknowledge you might be dealing with a scoffer. Or Proverbs 12, 15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. And you have to acknowledge you may be dealing with a fool. And there are lots of ways you can handle this, but one of them is not to call them a fool or a scoffer, but it's to recognize that there may be a place where your conflict isn't to go anywhere, so you don't keep chasing it. So in verse 16, you're still choosing the step of seeking reconciliation. In 16 it says, but if he does not listen, if he doesn't respond, this is the point where you now invite someone else. The scripture says two or three which is to say it's still not your whole community group, it's still not social media, that you've invited a couple of people into your life, Jesus goes on to say that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So this is where we come to the fourth principle. We want to call you to seek wise counsel. That you go and find two or three, because Jesus says two or three, this is where community starts to get involved. Continuing to steal wisdom from the book of Proverbs, it says this in Proverbs 13. By insolence comes nothing but strife, but those who take advice is wisdom. So we want to seek out wise counsel. And wise being the clear word, Psalm 1.1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, We want to seek out wise counsel, not just people who are going to agree with you. So let me give you some thoughts on wise counsel. I would find somebody with at least a couple of gray hairs. Now, it's certainly more true if you're a college-age student, high school-age student, than if you're an adult. But if you're an adult, I would still find somebody with some gray hairs, and preferably more of them than you have. You'll find a whole lot more wisdom in that scenario than you will looking at your own peer group, asking them to walk you through something. You also want to find somebody who reads their Bible, somebody who lives under the authority of Scripture, because that's going to tell you they're going to put Jesus first in this conflict, not appease you, please you, or tell you what you want to hear, because that's not what you need. So you go to these people, and you gather wisdom, you seek counsel from them. And what you might find in this process of going to your two or three is they may sit you down and give you some perspective. They may tell you that you need thicker skin. Because, friends, there are a lot of times when we have conflicts, we just need somebody to tell us, man, you need to get over that. You're making a mountain out of a molehill. Like, give it up. And sometimes wise counsel will do that for us. But other times, they're going to affirm your pain. They're going to tell you that this is a big deal. They're going to walk you through and acknowledge that what you're going through is hard and harmful. And so you're going to press forward into reconciliation. And it's at this person that you take this person with you. Why? Because Jesus tells you to. This isn't the words of Ben. This is the words of Jesus. Take the two or three with you And this isn't to gang up on someone. It's not to bring a second line of attack. 
It's to bring a wise person along so that you have a second set of eyes, a second set of ears, people who can keep your conflict from escalating, people who can keep it on topic. And so we come to this fifth principle, go as two or three. Now keeping in mind, even at this point, two or three are involved, we have not involved the whole world. Why? Because gossip kills community. And gossip kills reconciliation. And that's the whole point here. That we would be reconciled to one another as a matter of relational hygiene. That the gospel would be emphasized, not Ben's will, Ben's plan, or Ben winning. So now again, we have three things that can happen. You might come to peace with your brother or sister. Or you might not be able to come to peace at all. And it's possible at that point, having gone to them a second time, that you'll have peace, that you'll have done your part, and that you can walk away from it feeling like you've done what you can do, you have made peace. Or there's verse 17, which says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen, even to the church, Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Let's pause here and look at this verse in 17 and acknowledge really quickly the major mistakes that happen with verse 17. The first of which is that people have a tremendous habit of jumping to verse 17 without ever considering the first two. We jump to 17 and go, what, I should tell everyone? That's how I'm going to handle this. And when Jesus says, tell it to the church, he doesn't mean everyone you know. And he doesn't mean send an email to the whole church newsletter. He tells you to go to the church, implying here that you would seek out the church leadership, that you'd ask them to be involved. Why? Because the goal is reconciliation and not gossip. Friends, the goal here when someone sins against you is not that everyone would know What happened to you? As if you're entitled to be some recourse. The goal should be restoration and reconciliation. And so that's why verse 17 exists. Verse 17 is a step towards church discipline, a hairy and scary term. But this is what it means. It means you call the pastor, me. You call an elder. We've got six of them. You call a former elder. You go to somebody in the leadership of the church and sit down with them. Now, you got to know up front, if you show up in my office and you say, Hey, Ben, Larry, and by the way, I like worked on names this week because I didn't want to offend somebody. I've I've told too many stories involving names that somebody thought I was talking about them. So I picked Larry. I'm going to pick on Larry. If you happen to be a Larry here today, I I didn't know you were going to be here. I'd have gone with a different name. Tried to go with like 70s names. You're Larry, and you show up in my office, and you say, hey, Tom did this to me, and I'm really angry about it. Can you guess what the first thing I'm going to ask you is? Time for you to respond. Did you go to Tom? Why? Because that's what the Bible would say. I don't exist to handle your petty conflicts. If somebody's accidentally fertilizing your yard, I don't need to know about it. If somebody drops their gum on your shoe, it's not for me. 
You've got to learn to deal with your conflicts. I teach my kids this too, by the way. That they need to learn to deal with each other before they come to mom and dad. In fact, I always joke with my kids, hey, if you want me to deal with it, I'll deal with it, but you both get spanked. And if you want to deal with it, that's great. Come tell me how you dealt with it, and we can work it out from there. Because this is a step towards the church. And this only comes into play, this is why your two or three exist. It comes into play when there's been a grievous offense caused by an unrepentant believer. You know it's a believer because he keeps calling him a brother and not a Gentile or any other name. So we're working on the restoration of a believer here who's committed some grievous offense and is not repenting about it. So let's consider how that might look. I'll give you a couple examples. If Bill and Sally are married, again, if you're Bill and Sally, I just went with it. Bill and Sally are married, and Bill cheats on Sally and refuses to stop. Then Sally needs to consider if this is a sin she should overlook. Is it? Absolutely not. By no point. The Bible talks about this. This is a sin. It's labeled as a sin. Sally's got great standing here. So Sally needs to self-reflect. Now, when I tell Sally to self-reflect, I'm not telling Sally to ask what is her part in her husband cheating. I'm just saying Sally needs to deal with herself a little bit before she talks to her husband. Sally needs to then go to Bill. And if Bill turns her away, then Sally might call her older, wiser friend Carol, who loves Jesus, spends time in her Bible, and believes in the authority of God. So Sally and Carol might then go meet with Bill. And if Bill still isn't willing to reconcile, still isn't willing to repent, then Sally should call the church. She should call an elder. She should call the pastor. And then one of those guys should agree to meet with her. That's what this looks like and when it's played out in Scripture as it's played out on this earth. So let me give you a different scenario. Jeff really likes Taco Bell. And he wants all of us to go to Taco Bell for lunch. And Larry doesn't like Taco Bell and suggests we should go to Burger King. Should any of this be involved? No! There's no sin involved. So you walk it through step by step to see where it takes you. And if you've walked through the steps... And you and your wise counsel decide to take it to the next level and you go to the church, then we'll get involved with you. We would love to be involved with you. We would love to stand with you because we desire that the church be a reconciling party in your life. It's the gospel worked out. Do you see, if, as we've laid this out for you, the point of this is that all of us are sinning against one another. And if that we're going to be unified as a body, we get unified as a body under the banner of Jesus Christ when we're rightly reconciled to Him through Jesus and we rightly reconcile ourselves to one another through forgiveness. Because are we going to sin against each other? Absolutely we are. And we need to know how to handle it. And so the Bible puts out these principles for us to show us how to deal with it. And along the way, you're going to come to a spot and say, I have peace, I can move on. Or you might show up in my office 
And at that point, you might have peace and you can move on. Or there could be reconciliation. Jesus puts this before the disciples because they had a lot of stuff coming before them, didn't they? And we do too. And he needed them to know how to deal with one another. So Jesus, at the end of this, having told them to go to the church, he comes to verses 18, 19, and 20, and these are really important. But you also need to know that if there's a top 10 list of worst interpreted passages in the Bible, this is there. Verse 18 says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So what's the conflict of what, what's the context of what Jesus and Matthew were talking about? It's conflict, isn't it? How do you reconcile conflict? And specifically here, it's talking about how do you deal with it when your two or three can't handle it and you've gone to the church as a final means of reconciliation? You would find in the Old Testament that God always affirms His representation, those who have been called to work out judicial issues. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's making an affirmation of an Old Testament prophet process where God says he will affirm the New Testament representation of him. And it continues in 19 and 20. Again, I say to you, if two of you are in agreement on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Verse 20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. What Jesus says here is if you've walked through a conflict with your brother and that conflict escalates and it comes to the church and the church leaders who will pray through and work through reconciliation and resolution for you that god providentially and sovereignly is in the absolute middle of it now there's without question there are bad shepherds in the world the bible talks about that too But God says here that I agree with, I will stand in agreement with my earthly representation. And that says something about God's judicial sovereignty being worked out that we should take comfort in. That God is involved with a whole lot more than we think. Now that context says some things to us, but it also challenges our understanding of this passage and i just take a side note to tell you this in verse 20 when it says for two or three are gathered in my name there am i among them please for the love of the bible don't use this to describe your gathering or you praying with somebody because it is a vast and crazy misinterpretation of scripture and let me tell you why Because if you are alone sitting with your Bible reading and praying to God, is God there? Yeah, you don't have to have anyone else show up. You don't require a second or third person there to make a Bible study worthwhile. You don't have to have three of you to talk to Jesus. And yet I hear people consistently pray this in community. Lord, thank you that there's at least three of us saying you're here in our presence. Like, what are we communicating to people? That he wasn't here when just one of us got here early? 
Jesus is affirming his judicial process and his standing with his judicial representatives as you work out conflict. Is it a perfect system? No. Is it the system that God gave us in his divinely inspired word? Absolutely. So as we seek to deal with conflict in our lives, friends, Jesus put six principles before us that we should take heed. One, that we would look to overlook an offense. Two, that we would self-reflect over our own sin. Three, that we would go as one to the offender without talking to everyone else about it. Gossip is a sin. Going to everyone you know and telling them what happened to you is gossip. Don't do that. Go as one. If that doesn't resolve it, seek counsel. And if that doesn't resolve it, go as two or three. And if that doesn't resolve it, go to the church. Friends, we're leaning into this because we walked through parables talking about forgiveness And I got a handful of questions sent to me, shot to me, with people wanting to know how do they deal with conflict. The Bible puts it out there before us. Time is short. And the gospel is too important for us to be walking around in petty conflicts with one another. And our unity is too important for us to not be dealing with major conflicts with one another. It doesn't take a long time in a church to understand that there are people sitting in this room who have had long conflicts with people sitting in this room and we act like it's not happening. And the Bible calls that sin. So friends, we want to lean into that. We want to seek reconciliation so that the gospel might be fully manifested in our lives So that we wouldn't just be rightly reconciled to God, but we'd be rightly reconciled to one another. And that's when Jesus is glorified in our unity as we walk through it. Let me close with this. Not only will Jesus be glorified, but you'll have deeper and better relationships with one another. Because as we forgive one another, we will have built a process of trust. Well, we'll know, God, Larry sinned against me, and I went to him, and man, Larry owned it. Like, I didn't see that coming. Like, he was humble, and we were able to talk about it. And that was incredible. Or Larry didn't own it. But man, Frank and I got together, and we started praying through it, and Frank just gave me some insights in my life. Man, I didn't even see, and Frank just helped me to see. I just needed to let go of it. It wasn't going to go anywhere. Now, Frank and I have a better relationship. Do you see how the gospel works through all of this? And yet we can short-circuit it all by gossip and by self-entitlement and by seeking our will and not his. Let me pray for us. Gracious Father, as we look at this book, your holy word, the most important character in it is you, and it isn't me. Father, I can think that my desire, that my will is the most important thing in the universe, and it just isn't. 
Father, it is our desire, it is my desire that Jesus be glorified in anything and in everything. And Father, he is glorified when believers in Jesus Christ reconcile with one another, when we walk in unity, when we desire to see Christ exalted over our petty differences, and we lift up Jesus. Father, I pray that as a church, you would continue to call us to greater and greater and deeper and deeper unity. Father, as a people who practice a relational hygiene, that we consistently forgive one another and go to one another. Father, thank you that your word has application to every part of our life, that your word is true and it's our truth so we cling to it. Father, thank you for reconciling us through your son Jesus. And thank you for calling us to reconcile with one another through Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.